Sunward Sky, Episode 1.4, Manifest. Alyssa couldn't sleep. The unreal quarter of a G didn't seem enough to press the thin but efficient duvet onto her with any reasonable level of force. The pillows were hard but not uncomfortable, and her quarters were surprisingly spacious considering the limitations of the craft she was on. The whole space felt cool but not cold, yet her breath still spat from her in short, sharp bursts. She was thinking of holding, drifting hopelessly through the void, dancing in nothingness until his oxygen ran out. After she'd witnessed the thin astronaut fling holding his body from the spacecraft, she'd panicked and ducked underneath the window frame for several minutes. She'd nearly screamed for help, tried to get someone out to go after her, the doomed man, but two things had stopped her. Firstly, she'd realised that the thin man wouldn't go after the man he'd just murdered, and as far as she knew, he was the only one kitted up for a spacewalk at the time. For someone else to go out to help holding, they would have to get changed, cycle through the airlock, find where he was and be willing to risk their own lives to go out and back to get him. By that time, the odds of even being able to find him again, much less save him, were slim. Secondly, there'd been something about how the thin man had done the deed. It had been a furiously fast, well-practiced movement that had disconnected the safety line from its mounts, and he had floated silently, staring as he watched the demise of his fellow man to the emptiness. The radio was silenced, and they had gone back to his work. His nonchalance had chilled Alyssa to her core, and it made her wonder if he'd done it before. More than that, she found herself wondering if he'd been told to do it, and if that was true, then who else was in on it? She'd forced herself back into an air of disinterested calm, and had walked back out of the boardroom. Her rounds had taken another three hours, after which she'd gone to Healy in the medical bay and had him check over her again. He'd seemed slightly disinterested, and ran a cursory look over the, her wounds before declaring them fine and moving back to his own cleaning tasks. From there she'd showered, a very strange experience with only 20 litres of water and low gravity, and got into bed. Her heart was still hammering, and she felt it thud even harder whenever she stopped to think about the man she'd seen drift into the night. She'd lie there on the edge of sleep, and at the final moment, in that lurch in the liminal space of the mind, Holding's body would float through her consciousness and into oblivion. She'd jerk awake and stare horrified at the scuffed ceiling of her cabin before repeating the whole process. After several hours of this, Alyssa flung the duvet off her and twisted her body, letting her feet drift down to the cool ground. Her toes brushed the metal, and the pads of her feet seemed to almost bounce on the floor as she shifted to the clothing locker. She pulled a set of work overalls on over her bedclothes and wrapped her curly hair into a messy bun. A set of open-toed sandals sat at the base of the locker and she slid them on and turned it out of the door. I can't do nothing about this, she thought to herself as she wandered around the empty halls of her cabin complex at the aft of the ship. I have to tell someone. She still had a limp from her sore knee, but the arm in the sling was already improving hugely. The med foam worked as advertised, it would seem. It would probably be only a couple of days before she'd have full use again. Who to tell, though? Healy had barely been interested in fixing her up with new dressings and didn't strike her as one for intrigue. He just wanted to do his job. Plus, the man was very rough around the edges. If he thought someone was in danger, he could overreact. She considered telling War, the officer that had mocked her for getting injured on the way up. Alyssa decided not to. She wasn't keen to go another round with the experienced shipmate who clearly had a disdain for newbies. After a few moments, her mind drifted to Elise. She decided that if anyone was going to hear about this, it was her. There was no rational reason or logic behind the decision, but she felt like she had to tell someone. 
she found a wall terminal and tapped Elise into the Find a Crew Member button. The terminal was worn down, and the capacitance in the screen didn't respond on some characters. The name that ended up on the search was LLYS, but the search algorithm found her fine. She was a few hallways away, in a second bank of cabins on the other side of the mess. Alyssa turned and stumped off, hoping that Elise had sleeping problems as well. The message came over the intercom when she was halfway between her cabin and Elisa's, next to the mess where she'd seen Holden utter the words that had caused an end to his life. Dear crew, we've had an incident on board. A first-time crew member, one Michael Holding, suffered an accident while on a spacewalk to fix the heat shield. It would seem that Mr. Holding failed to affix his guy line to the safety point appropriately, and upon realising his mistake, was unable to radio for help to his workmate. We must impress upon all crew members the serious safety measures that have been put in place to ensure that accidents such as these do not happen. Ensure radios are in working order prior to spacewalks, and make doubly sure that you are securely attached to the ship before undertaking any repairs. Thank you. What a callous message, Alyssa thought. They hadn't spoken with any sympathy for Holding's plight. They'd barely acknowledged the man at all. They seemed to think that it had been a malfunction with the radio and a mistake with the guy line. At least, that's what the thin fellow must have passed on when they were filling out the incident report. But she knew better. She'd seen the man flick down to release the safety latch. And she'd even seen when he'd thumbed the radio on his belt, jamming it so that Holding couldn't possibly ask for help. It was utter rubbish. Ensure radios are in working order, indeed. The radio must have been working. They'd been communicating all the time right up until the accident. Surely the radios would have been checked before the two of them went out, especially seeing as that spacesuit had looked brand new. She stopped walking. The spacesuit was brand new. There was no way the radio was broken, or something else was wrong with it. It was pristine, and she'd seen them communicating. With dawning dread, she realised that her situation was getting even more precarious. Not only had she witnessed a murder, she'd witnessed a murder that must have been expressly ordered by someone in a command position on the ship. What's more, she realised, was that her intuition to tell Elise couldn't be trusted. No, she couldn't possibly trust anyone until such time as she could ascertain who had knowledge about what had gone on with Holding's death. She couldn't ask anyone about what she'd seen in the terminal. That was a death wish waiting to happen. She couldn't tell anyone about the murder unless she knew, beyond a shadow of a doubt, that they would believe her and be on her side. What she needed to do was find some way of figuring out what exactly the two men in the terminal had been doing. It had to have something to do with the ship, otherwise Holding wouldn't have seen fit to mention it. What else had he seen that had tipped him off? With a start, she realised she'd been standing in front of the mess for some time, and she had drawn the looks of a couple of people working the second shift as they walked past. She must have made quite a sight, standing there staring into nothingness and wrapped in slings and plaster. She couldn't draw any more attention to herself. Instead of heading the way she'd been going, she turned around and stumped back off towards her cabin. Once she got there, she stripped back down to her underwear and pulled the duvet over herself. She mused silently that he had just committed a cardinal sin of spaceflight. Her clothing remained unsecured on the floor. Any strange manoeuvres would result in her belongings flying around the cabin. For some time, her fright at the situation fought with her tiredness, coursing through her body. She turned her shoulder slowly, feeling it loosen up in the sling. It was amazing how fast the foam was able to fix the joint and get all the tendons moving properly again. Before too long, she slipped into a fitful sleep. The motors that rotated the three wings of the sunward sky were enormous, impulse-driven electromagnets. 
One section near the base of the central column was dedicated to a series of step-up transformers that drew power from highly efficient solar cells on the hull. These sent incredibly powerful bursts of alternating current through the electromagnets, which provided the impulse to turn the wings and create the artificial gravity that the occupants relied upon. Three days after the spaceflight began, as Alyssa lay in her cabin dreaming of the man that had been flung into space before her eyes, the impulses being sent to the electromagnets weakened in both intensity and duration. The spin of the rocket's wings slowed down, gradually enough that at first the reduction in artificial gravity wasn't even felt by the crew members aboard the ship. After half an hour, they began to notice loading becoming easier. They noticed that the plates that held their food were bouncing as they were set down. They noted that walking was both easier, as they could move with less impulse, and harder, as they had to readjust to the bounciness of the lessening gravity. An hour after that, the wings had stopped rotating entirely, but the connecting walkway from the hatch that Alyssa had seen was not lined up with the sister on the spacecraft's core. A smaller series of motors was engaged to realign the shaft with the doorway. With a loud series of clunks, the ship shifted around itself inch by inch. Finally, the entry shaft aligned with the hatch. A team of four people wearing masks floated down the now empty hallways of the ship in Wing 2. The second shift was over, and the overlapping shift was being handled by Wing 1. Everyone was asleep in their cabins. They reached the hatch in what had been the ceiling of this hall and pulled it gently open. One stood aside and held the hatch behind him as the other three pushed themselves off the floor onto the shaft. Once they were through, he pulled his weight around and followed them. He pulled the hatch almost completely closed behind him, leaving only a small snicket of an opening, so they could see down the unlit hallway. Alyssa woke up when her shoes bumped her on the nose. Groggily, she tried to swat it away, but did so with the force that would have been necessary on Earth. A few dazed and confused seconds ensued as she remembered where she was and tried in vain to orient herself in the way the room should be. The shoe flew off and clanged against the door to her water closet, and by the time she'd remembered which way was up, it had had enough time to bounce back and hit her square in the jaw. She swore softly as she regarded the floating mess that was her quarters, and rubbed her shoulder. The movement had aggravated it, though it hurt less than she would have assumed considering it had only been a few days since the accident. She pushed herself off the wall next to her bunk and floated around, collecting the items of clothing she'd left strewn around the cabin. A reflection of the burnished surface hinted at a face just on the edge of healing pale bruise marks around hollow eye sockets. At least the bloodshot had gone from her eyes. Once everything was stowed away, Alyssa once again took stock of the room. The Velcro straps on the back of her coveralls suddenly made sense, and she was rapidly realising the importance of keeping a lid on the recycling unit. A globule of water was slowly forming around the head of the tap. It looked unlikely as the surface tension wrapped over the faucet and expanded outwards in a shimmering sphere. She turned the faucet off, and splashed the bubble with her hand. Water flew everywhere in droplets and she smiled and tried to hunt down the water, sipping at it while she somersaulted through the space. When all the water bubbles were gone, she lay back into her newfound weightlessness and drifted, lightly bumping off the walls and ceilings of her room, orienting herself this way and that, and trying to get rid of the notion of up and down that her mind was so keen to impress upon her. Before too long, her mind once again drifted back to Holding's death and to whatever was going on in the ship. She had a gnawing sense of unease that wouldn't leave her. The flash of a carabiner as it was unhooked from a safety point kept fighting its way into her consciousness. Five minutes later, she had a fresh jumpsuit on and was cracking the door to her cabin. She found that the easiest way to move about was to treat the structural boltheads like footholds on a climbing wall 
and vault herself along with her legs, using only her arms to guide herself. If she'd done it any other way, the smaller muscles of her arms would have worn out and she'd not have had the ability to fly through the hall as easily as she did. Before long, she found what she'd been looking for. The hatch that read cargo that she'd passed earlier that day. To her surprise, she found it cracked open when she reached the edges and brought herself to a halt. The hatch was obviously on a stiff hinge. It wasn't drifting in the null G, and it didn't hang open but remained cracked only slightly, such that you'd only notice if you were looking. Alyssa shuddered, suddenly cold. With a glance up and down the hallway, she pressed her hand against the bulkhead and pulled the hatch open, then slid inside. The tunnel that linked the wing to the cargo bay was narrow and lit with low-quality red LEDs. Handholds appeared every half metre or so on two sides of the shaft, which Alyssa used to guide herself down to the core of the ship. After a short time, the handholds disappeared, as did the edges of the shaft, and Alyssa saw a hatch fully opened on the top of the doorway. Sid accidentally projected herself directly out into the centre of the cargo bay, where anyone could have seen her had they been standing there. Luckily, the muffled voices she heard came from the other side of the bay, and she was able to softly halt herself against a large container, crouching down onto its surface to decelerate herself slowly. There were three or four voices, she noted, and they were floating across the recycled air from about 30 metres away. So long as she kept the voices far away from herself, she should be able to keep them from seeing her. I don't even know what I'm looking for, she thought to herself, as she danced from container to container. Her eyes glanced over the sea of containers. They were all tied down with heady-duty straps, and hooked either to the floor or to the crate below. Each was roughly the same size and had locking plates in the corner that stopped them from moving. On the sides of them was a digitised hex code, similar to the barcodes and QR codes of the past, along with Anglo and Mando de details of the crate's location. She read the Mando side. Shipment boarding Sunward Sky on X date, bound for G-Sync PRC20Y81. And then a bunch of numbers and codes in a table that she supposed must be the details of the container itself. G-Sync prc 2081 was obviously the satellite number. This set looked like a new array of solar cells, along with some plating to replace some of that had been wrecked by space dust some time ago. She moved to the crate above it. It was destined for the same station. Made sense. That way they could do it in just the whole interlocked row and shunt it over to do the install. She moved to the next row and sure enough they were all destined for a different geosynchronous satellite. Keeping a close ear on the voices nearby, and making sure they didn't get too close, she inspected the manifest stickers on each of the containers. In each instance, she found that the crates on the same stacks were bound for the same destination. Mainly geosynchronous GPS satellites, but occasionally to photographic mapping and radar arrays. Repair kits and replacements for old and out-of-date parts abounded, with occasionally more meaty fare such as upgrades to sensors or shipboard computer elements. She was getting dangerously close to the voices of the four cargo bay members now, and she dared not get any closer. She still couldn't make out their conversations, their voices were strangely muffled. She turned to go when she spotted what she knew she'd come to look for. Most of the other storage carts were similar in size and stature to the ones she'd seen in the terminal. Long, wide and squat. The one in the terminal must have been on its side. They stacked neatly, and they were uninteresting in their uniformity. A matte black that cast satin reflections in the red LED light, and brushed steel corners that clipped into each other. The design harkened back to the flight cases of the 20th century and was tried and true design. This one was anything but that. It was all white ceramic and silver chrome, segmented and enormous. 
The red light shone off it like a mirror from hell. The cables that held it in place were three times the size of the stays on the other pallets, as though it were apt to burst to life on its own. Though it sat in the form of a rectangular prism, it gave the impression of a coiled scorpion, something that could unfurl and strike at any moment. Alyssa floated silently next to it, taking in its bulk, hardly noticing as the voices drew nearer. When she snapped to, they were talking just on the other side of the crate she was hidden behind. This the last one? The voice was female, and still blocked somehow. It was like it was breathing from within a tunnel. Yeah, the others are in place. This voice was male, deep and sonorous enough that it wouldn't have been out of place in an opera. Didn't think we were going to have any more trouble. Where are we dropping it? First dock. Alyssa was breathing so loudly she swore they'd have to be able to hear her. Whatever this thing was, there were more of them. Whoever these people were, they had something planned. We're not going to have any more issues, are we? The voice rasped as it spoke. Fucking Terrans. It's too easy with them. All you need to do is disconnect the safety line when they bounce around the hole and they're done for. Nah, that holding is the last one who knew. We're pretty sure that's the one Brett saw on the ground. With that, Alyssa had heard enough. She knew she had to get out of the cargo bay and back into her cabin. She pushed herself backwards off the crate, but again, she wasn't adjusting for the zero gravity environment. The safety lines holding it in place clinked loudly, and a, what was that, shot from the other side of the crate. For the second time that week, Alyssa found herself running away from would-be assailants. A series of thumps came from behind the container as the others pushed themselves off flat surfaces to come after her. She was already on the way and had a head start, but there were more of them. She bounded around the containers, no longer trying to be quiet, just desperately trying to get back into the shaft to wing two of the spacecraft. A few seconds later, she saw it, sitting out in a yawning chasm between the crates she'd halted herself on on the way in. She could have ducked around the other side and stayed hidden for longer, but she didn't have time. She flung herself desperately towards the corner and careened into the shaft shortly after two people rounded the corner. Shit, did they see me? She thought, as she ripped herself down the handholds as fast as she could. She kicked violently against the side of the shaft, moving her along at a breakneck clip. The others followed her down, crawling like spiders as they tried to reach her before she got to the end of the dark hall. It didn't work. She burst out of the main deck of the Wing 2 with a gasp, slamming her injured shoulder into the deck before manoeuvring herself to push back up the hatch of the shaft. Pressing her legs against the bulkhead, she gripped the heavy door with both hands and slammed it shut. She raced away down the deserted hallway as she heard the thud of several bodies hitting the other side of the hatch. The hatch clicked open again a few seconds later, but by then she was gone from the hall. Flicking her way back to the cabin, leaving the four masked crew members staring down the other end of the hallway, unable to figure out where she'd gone. Back in her cabin, she pulled the door shut, her chest heaving and her shoulder aching almost as badly as it had when she'd woken up. With a kind of frenzied determination, she stripped off her coveralls and threw them at the wall in impotent rage. She wanted to scream, but that would have garnered her too much attention. Instead, she curled into a ball and cried. Thanks for tuning in. My name's Henry Nielsen, author and producer of Sunward Sky. If you want to get in contact, you can follow me on Twitter or Reddit by the handle Hunting Sunrise, or on Instagram at hunting underscore sunrise. If you like this story, consider picking up my ebook novella Eleanor's Mind, available on Kindle and Kindle Unlimited. Again, thank you very much, and I hope you tune in again next time.